This is a crowd podcast. I'm Sam Warburton and you're listening to Captains, the leadership podcast where I chat with big name guests about how to build winning teams. This is the second part of my conversation with writer and political strategist Alistair Camp. When I go through really difficult periods now, I say, right, this feels like shit. How does it feel compared with when I literally was going insane, hearing voices, seeing things, and I thought I was going to die? Hi, everyone. Thanks again for listening to Captains. A reminder, if you haven't already, make sure you listen to part one of my chat with Alistair as there are a few callbacks here. In this episode, we talk a lot about teamwork and leadership in politics and how it's changed over time. We look back at Alice's relationship with then Prime Minister Tony Blair and discuss where recent political leaders have fallen short. Also, Alice has written books and fronted documentaries about his mental health, and he talks really openly and honestly here about how he manages this on a daily basis. Enjoy the episode with Alistair Campbell. There's coaches in sport, I find, who, um, I think what people like about them, you'll probably testify this when you hear someone who's just really honest and quite emotive and quite outspoken that's what people quite like they love that honesty and i think that's why you're popular is because you have a very similar nature you're, you're emotive you don't shy away from an argument and disagreement is that something that you've always been like from a young age or is that a skill that you've had to acquire through your career in, in politics in particular I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think I've I've always liked a good argument. <laughs> um, like in school, you know, like if, there's some yeah, there's some kids I'd in school always... who just always very they're into debates. They don't mind confront, yeah. verbal confrontation. Did you no, mind never, that then? No, I know I didn't mind challenging teachers. Really? Yeah. Um, I I was always quite confident in my own opinion. I got nervous, and I still do get nervous. And I, and the thing is, I also I was I've always been very hardworking, so I'd always. I wouldn't blunder into an argument. I would always, you know, be sure of my ground before I had the argument. But I can get, I think I'm conscious of the fact all my life that I sometimes can get too emotional too quickly. Um, Now, I think sometimes that can be very good and very useful, other times less so. Um, But I think the other thing I've learned, I've always loved words. I've always, you know, I ended up doing languages at university and I, even as a small kid, I used to write all the time. I love words. And I think um, I've, I've not been... Look, I, was, I saw some of you guys trade. I, I, I'm quite fit, physically fit. And, you know, touch wood, I've not been involved in many kind of, you know, big bad fights in my time. But I've always felt... I've never felt scared physically. Well, sometimes... There have been occasions when I felt scared physically. But uh, I remember watching... Um, oh, God, what was the English prop forward called who was on that tour Jason White no he was out his nails he, yeah he was the other one he was absolutely massive oh Andrew Sheridan Andrew Sheridan yeah oh, Andrew what a monster Sheridan. oh my god but I watched him in the gym one day oh my goodness yeah. oh my god <laughs> I, and I, I watched him and then afterwards I saw what he'd been lifting I can't remember how much it was oh he was a freak and I, and I went over and I tried to lift what he had. <laughs> I love the I love the fact that you wanted to go for it. <laughs> and it was just I couldn't I couldn't move it a millimeter. <laughs> and he had been kind of you know boom boom boom. It was just incredible. So you know I I think that tells you that 
if you unless you're of that physical strength and you've got courage to match you you're always vulnerable in those physical confrontation situations so actually i think what i learned early on is you need other skills sometimes to get yourself out of situations that you might have sort of got mm. yourself into yeah and i think that's where kind of words and communication comes in do you think that the leaders in politics and leaders in business have much much sort of in do they have a lot of similarities or do you think a political leader needs to be quite different to say a leader in the in the business world uh i think there can be similarities i think poli- i think politics is the it's probably the hardest form of leadership hmm. because it's the most exposed um but at the same time i think that they can all one of the reasons i wrote the book they can the winner's book they can all learn from each other tony blair and i used to, you know i'm a massive football fan he's quite a big football fan and we used to talk most Sunday evenings or Monday mornings, part of our little chit chats that we'd have on the phone or in the office would be about football over the weekend. And often it would be about the aftermatch interviews because you can, you know, you can learn from watching the people. You can, I always say you can learn from watching people do things well and you can learn from watching things do, do things badly. But watching those top level communicators in sport when they are really under pressure in the heat of defeat when they know that they're going to get fined if they say the wrong thing when they know that the the i remember wenger wenger who's i think one of the most impressive people i've ever met and i remember saying you know do, do you not find these interviews absolutely balls aching you've got to do them contractually before the game after mm. the game press conference this press conference that and he said yeah he said but i said who's your audience he said the players really yeah he said he's not really he doesn't really bother what the press he's not really that bothered he said but you know there's just the off chance that the players might see bits of it so he's always talking to the players interesting and if you think about that you know famously the whole thing about oh, i didn't see it <laughs> you know it's because he's not going to criticize the player on television he's going to wait he's going to see him um so i think it's no i think that funny enough we've just been doing for our podcast we've just been doing an interview with a a former Canadian politician and who was saying that who actually wasn't a very successful politician we actually interviewed him because he had one of the worst defeats ever in well, the worst defeat ever for the Liberal Party in Canada and he was saying that he realized that the politicians he admires are the ones who actually can hold on to what they believe but at the same time navigate all these different pressures and the demands of a party and so forth and I think you know one of the reasons I've written the latest book but what can I do is because I think so many people who actually would could have really good skills in politics don't even think about doing it anymore and it means the gene pool for politics is getting narrower and narrower and narrower you know in a healthy democracy the idea that Boris Johnson would ever have been prime minister of a great country like the UK is just absurd mm-hmm. Liz Truss it's absurd and yet that happened um, Trump in America you know, so something very bad is going on that means that the gene pool is getting narrower and narrower and the public make it even worse than by the pressures that are put on politicians to be way better than we allow them to be. So I'd love to pick your brains on this because you've got so much experience in the political world. What were Tony Blair's strengths as a leader? You worked very closely with him, obviously, with your, with your relationship and role there. What did you like about him as a leader? He knew what he wanted to do. Uh, he knew what he wanted to achieve. He, people go on about 
the vision thing being overrated. You've got to have a vision of where you're trying to get to. Mm. And his vision was a modern Britain. It was modernising the country. It was, it was hanging on to the things that were worth hanging on to. It was changing the things that weren't. And that went for our politics, for our public services, for the Labour Party, for everything. He's, he, he, was, he had an ability to... I think he was a good team builder. I think he was absolutely determined to surround himself with people that he trusted, but not as yes-men and yes-women. Yeah, he did good. not want yes-men. He wanted people who would challenge him. That's good. And he wanted... Uh, we did Jonathan Powell, who was Tony's chief of staff. We interviewed him on the podcast recently, and he said that he thought what we had was what he called complementarity. You know, I had a certain skill set, he had a certain, certain skill set. There were, we, we had all the skills that you need in a team were kind of there. And what I think we were able to do between us, but, bec- but largely because of Tony's personality, was that we were able to get on, not tread on each other's toes unless it was necessary. And we actually, every year since pretty much since 1994, when Tony first became leader of the Labour Party, we have this annual gathering, and it's pretty much the same people. And we've had lots of ups and downs, and there have been occasional fallouts between people, but essentially that team is still the same. And I don't think you get that unless you've got a leader. Hmm. You know, I don't believe for one second that Donald Trump and Boris Johnson, if they're still alive in 20 years' time, I'll be sitting around with the core team because the core team knows that they only care about themselves. That's interesting. Uh, so, so I think Tony's ability—he's got—he's got a real compassion and empathy. He's also—he's very, very clever, which is underestimated in, uh, I think, in political leadership. He's very clever, but he, part of his cleverness is an ability to distill really complicated stuff and make people get what he's on about who might not be as clever as he is without talking down to them um so i could go on forever about tony i think he's he's a good negotiator uh he's a good speaker he's a good writer uh the other thing i think is important to say my favorite headline about tony blair ever was the australian newspaper weekend magazine did a front cover profile of him this was quite early on I think we might even have still been in opposition. And it was a sort of cartoony photo, cartoon drawing of Tony on the front cover of the magazine. And the headline was, Nice Kind of Bastard. <laughs> yeah. And I thought that was absolutely yeah, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. Because you, you've got to be a bit ruthless. Yeah, you've got to be able to do really difficult things and really tough things. You've got to be able to cast people aside sometimes. You know, and in your world, I mean, I, I honestly don't know sports management now because... You've got these big squads, loads mm. of them don't play. Yeah, ruthless. You've got to get rid of people when the form starts to drop. You've got all the data that's telling you that the form's starting to drop. And, you know, so Tony didn't have as much of that to deal with. But when he, he hated it at first, by the way, I can remember the first, in the early days, the first sackings that he did, he absolutely hated it. But he got tougher. He got tougher. Yeah. And by the end, it was basically, he wasn't, he wasn't any less empathetic. He cared about it. He didn't want to upset people. But he, I can remember at one point he was getting to a stage where we had loads of stuff going on. He was doing a reshuffle. And the big people, the jobs that were sort of cabinet, senior level, he felt he had to do them face-to-face, a bit lower down the racks. He was just phoning up and saying, listen, I'm really sorry, I'm making changes. And, you know, you're going to have to make way for somebody else. And that was it. So I, really interesting. I don't want to turn this into a witch hunt for anyone who's been his PM recently, but I'm actually just interested in your opinion from like a personality perspective. But what do you think maybe 
some of the more recent PMs have lacked from a from a leadership perspective? Well, fun enough, I think about on Cameron, and I'm not. Um, this isn't hindsight because I wrote about this in Winners, which I think came out before the referendum. I have to check that, but certainly it was. I wrote it before the referendum, and the the point I made about Cameron. I've got this thing in the book about you need leadership, strategy, and teamship all working together. Leadership, teamship, strategy, strategy, leadership, teamship. You've got to have all three. I thought Cameron had a lot of what I would call conventional leadership skills. I thought he could look the part, he could sound the part, he was quite good at building a team, he was he, he was capable of making difficult decisions and so forth. Um, and it, But on strategy, I think he was too quick to be driven down a tactical route. And so the referendum for me was a tactic rather than a strategy. Hmm. It was a tactic to try and quiet his party down about Europe rather than a strategy about, you know, building a better Britain, as it were. So, and, and ultimately, he lost the referendum and he's out of power because of that. So I would say that's a failure of strategy. He argued that he had to do it. I don't agree with that. Um, I think Theresa May was... Um, somebody who had real work ethic attention to detail commitment but i think lacked some of those personal skills that i'm afraid you do need in politics and 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 therefore the whole thing about coming over is a bit robotic um she also i'm afraid at a critical point in her leadership started that there's there's a there's an upside to having such a biased right-wing media in this country but there's a downside as well. And I think she inhaled too much of the propaganda when she first came in about how marvellous she was going to be and decided to go for an election. And she mm. never really recovered from that election. She limped on with the DUP uh, alongside her. She was given this horrible hand of Brexit uh, through the referendum. And she had Johnson in the background. I think it was a mistake to make him foreign secretary. I think she should have... I don't know what she'd have done with him, but I think that was a mistake. It allowed him, that was the next step up for him. It allowed him to be there as a kind of a never-endingly undermining force. He came in. I think he is the worst prime minister this country's ever had. I think his character and his personality do not lend themselves to effective leadership. Uh, Liz Truss was an aberration that was that flowed from him. Um, I think Sunak is trying to be more professional, trying to be more grown up. But I've got to say, I think, you know, I was a journalist when Mrs Thatcher was in power. I think a Rishi Sunak-style character would have been a middle-ranking minister in a middle-ranking department. Mm. And we're back to the Gene Pool point, you know. And if he were to fall under a bus tomorrow, I don't know who they'd go for. Mm. And I do think, on you know, people have got their criticisms of, of Keir Starmer, people have got criticisms of every leadership position in politics, but... I really feel there's got to be a change of government in this country. We can't limp on like this. We really are limping on as a country at the moment. Interesting, really interesting. What about dealing with pressure then? You've been involved in some really high-end political calls and, and big decisions. Um, can you talk about maybe some of the stress and pressure that comes to that? And do, do you like that? Some people say they, they really enjoy that part of the role, they get used to it. What were you like in those situations? Depends what it is. I, I, I think it's true. And again, I mentioned Jonathan Powell, who was you know one of my closest colleagues in Number Ten. He said on our podcast recently that he felt there was a, he did get a rush 
when there was a crisis, when you felt, oh, this really matters. And I had a bit of that, no doubt about it. I think that, you know, you, government's always interesting, it's always important, there's always stuff going on, but it's like anything else. You get used to it, you can get into a pattern, you can get into a rhythm, and then suddenly, whoosh, something kicks off, something goes on, and you know, you've got to step up again. It's like it's like the difference for, you, for somebody in your world, like, you know, you've got a home game against a sort of lower division club in a cup game you don't get yourself up for it quite as much as you do for a you know for a challenge a cup final and so I think I was pretty good in a crisis I think I was pretty good under pressure um I did quite enjoy it to be frank I did I, enjoy, I enjoyed the feeling of it mattering more I loved planning I loved having the sense of something really big that you knew was coming up and how do you maximize its opportunities and how do you minimize the threats I like that kind of stuff Funny enough, I'm sitting in our front room at home and Fiona, my partner, is through there in the in the kitchen at the moment. When you talked about the pressure, to be honest, the, some of the worst times were, were in there uh, because that's where, that's the place. The one that comes to mind the most was the day that David Kelly, the civil servant who, who took his own life at the, the height of the, the dispute that I was involved in with the BBC over Iraq. That was the low point, bar none. And that was the only point where I kind of felt I was crumbling. I felt, I actually felt I've got to, I can't do this anymore. I've got to get out. Um, and I would have got out, I think, if Tony hadn't have talked me out of it um, that day. Um, and it was probably the right thing to stay for a bit. But I knew, I definitely knew that it was time to move on because, and it wasn't the pressure so much as, I guess, the sense of accumulated just accumulated wear and tear that you know you just you just feel I've I've come hitting the end of the road here I, I can't keep getting up to do this stuff again and again and again um and so yeah I think I think that I've, I've I've written a lot about crisis management and I think that I think that when the worst ones were always when it was a mixture of the political and the personal I think that one was really hard because on Iraq I was I was well aware that most of the country were, you know, a lot of the country were up in arms. I was well aware that it was going to be very difficult with public opinion. Um, but I also had the fact that, you know, I was living with somebody who was totally opposed to it as well. And that, that brings its own pressures. And so, you know, it just became, just with everything else going on, it became intolerable. You're listening to Captains with me, Sam Warburton, and my guest, Alistair Campbell. Maybe what you were just alluding to there is separate to this, but you've, you've spoken admirably as well, but and very openly and honestly about mental health and living with depression, and you've written a book on that as well and presented a documentary on that. What, maybe, I, I don't want to sort of ask this naively, because I, I'm one of the fortunate ones. I haven't been through mental health. Yes, I've suffered with, you know, nerves, pressure, anxiety, that like we all do, but not sort of clinically... What what was that like to, to live with, particularly in, in a role like yourself in such a, a high profile role or always been in some sort of high profile role? What was what was that like to live with? Well, I still live with it. Um, I take medication every day. Um, I still have depressive episodes, not as bad as they were, 
I think I've learned to deal with it a lot better. Funnily enough, help, writing the book helped me a lot, actually. Mm. And also the, Fiona, the chapter that Fiona wrote in there was an eye-opener for me as well because I think I realised that some, one of the ways I've been dealing with it was actually to allow other people that it, it was partly their fault as well. And I think it was only when the psychiatrist I was seeing actually said, I want to see Fiona, I want to see your kids, and was them saying to them, him saying to them, you must never, ever blame yourself, was a kind of real breakthrough moment. Mm. And it also allowed me to realise, actually, this is about me, not about anybody else, and it's not even about work, it's just about there's something going on. What it was like about, I mentioned the thing about not enjoying the elections in 1997. I didn't enjoy any of the elections, to be honest, the, the actual days of the <laughs> Um, and I think that was just about the pressure, feeling the pressure and feeling what's the next thing, what's the next thing. But no, it's horrible. And I realised when I went through, when I was transcribing my diaries after I left, I realised I was actually probably depressed quite a lot of the time. And I think work was, being a workaholic was, you know, what helped me kind of power through it a lot of the time. Um, There's only once that I actually felt I couldn't function. Um, most of the time I was able to sort of get up and go. But I knew I wasn't, I was maybe operating at 70% or 100%. Uh, and like I said earlier, Tony was a great boss to work for in many ways. But on this, because he's like you, I don't think he's ever had what I would define as, as mental ill health. And it's funny how you said, you know, you've never had mental health. You do have mental health. It's just you have good mental health. Yeah, yes, good point, yeah. <laughs> but I think, so I think Tony has essentially very good mental health and he's an optimist and he's he's very positive about mm. life and... He's always looking for the good in people and all that. Um, but I remember saying to him, you know, so he, he, he was saying, you know, I'd say to him, but I'm just, I'm not really on it at the moment. I'm feeling about 60%. And he'd say, well, that's fine. He said, I'd rather have your 60% than most people's 100%. <laughs> that's all, that's Thanks. not very helpful. To, that's not very helpful. Um, and, but I think that was the other thing that I, when I first realized that I had mental health problems was when I had a breakdown in the 80s and I ended up in hospital I ended up getting arrested I was in hospital for a while and because I was a journalist at the time on um, in Fleet Street kind of word went around of all sorts of stuff that happened and all sorts of crazy rumors went around and some of them were really wild so people in my orbit knew all about it they knew something had happened and I just decided it's one of the best decisions I ever made I just decided I'm going to go straight in and tell everybody exactly what happened and how I've now got to rebuild myself. And, you know, I write in the in the, the depression book about, I've written, this guy actually ended up editing my diaries, an amazing guy called Richard Stott, who was my editor at the Mirror when I left to go to the newspaper, which is where I was when I had the breakdown. And when I was in hospital, he phoned me up and basically offered me my old job back. And that was like, because I thought I was finished. And that was like one of those moments where you just mm. think, well, if he doesn't think I'm finished, because he was somebody I respected, it means I'm not finished. But he did say to me, you've got to start at the bottom again. Uh, and I did, and I just slowly rebuilt myself. I think the other things, you know, Fiona staying with me was a massive thing. I think a lot of women would not have done the state I was in, the stuff I'd been doing. And, um, so that was a massive thing. And then just, but it's, you know, when we go back to the perseverance thing, for me, the resilience actually stems from that. It stems from when I go through really difficult periods now, I always I go into a dark room, I lie down and I say, right, this feels like shit. This is really difficult. How does it feel compared with March 1986? 
when I literally was going insane, hearing voices, seeing things, and I thought I was going to die. And I just have that yardstick now that I find helps me just sort of keep going. I say that perspective as well. I, I was going to ask that, actually. You, you literally said that, but I was going to say, you sorely sit where you are now, and you look back over everything you've done, such a vast sort of fulfilled career. Are you, in a way, kind of pleased you've gone through everything you've gone through? Because it almost puts you in this, not I wouldn't say bulletproof, but it puts you in this space where you are now, where you've gone through a lot more than other people. You've got a lot more perspective than other people. Are you glad you've gone through a lot of those life experiences to be where you are now? Oh, yeah, totally. I mean, I, I often say that I'm a breakdown. I now will say to people, it was at the time I thought it was the worst thing that happened to you. It's, I now look back at it as one of the best. Um, and it's like, I remember when, when my diaries first came out, I'm doing an interview, and I can't remember who it was now, but it was a very perceptive question. It said, look, I get the feeling that this is an amazing experience that you've had, but I didn't get the feeling you were happy a lot of the time. And I said, no, I don't think I was happy a lot of the time, but I'm very, very happy that I've done it. Um, and, you know, cause sorry to keep plugging away in the book. It's another book I wrote. It's called The Happy Depressive. And what that was about was me saying, basically, I think particularly these days where everything's so short term and social media and how many likes did that get and all this sort of nonsense mm, that I people know. sort of really care about. You know, I don't see life, I don't see happiness as being about being in the moment. I see happiness as something that you you use the word fulfillment uh, to me it's related to fulfillment it's related to getting towards the end of your life and thinking you know have I actually achieved and fulfilled all the things that I could now I know actually deep down there's a part of me that the answer is always going to be no because a part of me I say this in the in the latest book the elephant in the room of this book which is encouraging other people to go into politics is well why didn't you get into elected politics yourself which is a fair question which I which I, I try to answer in detail. But at the same time, I feel that whatever I've done, I've always tried to do it really well. Um, and I've always wanted it to be interesting for me. I get bored very easily, but I've also always wanted it to be fruitful for other people. So, for example, even something like the Lions Tour, I mean, I really prepared for that. I really worked mm. hard on it. I really took it seriously. It didn't work out as I'd would have hoped but that wasn't because of what I was doing it was because we went and it became a, a losing tour um, and I actually but then out of that I've had all sorts of amazing experiences you know I was I've, as I say there's I'd say a good seven or eight of the players that I've stayed in pretty close touch with mm, that's nice um, you know and that's just sort of so I'm glad about that and likewise you know I guess the I, I mean you know Fiona and I would now have been together 42 years I mean I think there are so many couples that I know who had they gone through some of the things that we've gone through wouldn't be together mm. right well we are and that's probably the single most important achievement yeah no, I agree. <laughs> story in my life that I that I value and all the rest of it is is kind of built around it but I mean that's a long-winded way of saying yeah I'm pretty happy with the way my life's gone mm. and the other thing I, I do a lot of talks in schools and I always say to them that you know never if anybody ever comes to you and says you know you're going to look back on these days as the best days of your life tell them they're really stupid <laughs> because you know your school days should be like the beginning of an adventure you just haven't got a clue where it's going to go yeah 
but yeah. you just hope it's going to go into some amazing places. Yeah, I like that. Has leadership changed in your career? When we, because when, when we speak to sportsmen and women, you know, a lot of them say that you have to speak to people a bit differently now compared to maybe twenty years ago. Maybe with a bit more empathy. Is that the same in your world, or is it still quite different and still quite ruthless and direct? No, I think some of the changes have happened. I think some of them have been good. Um, you know, if I remember when I was first, uh, there's a lot of focus in the moment on the so-called bullying culture in mm. Westminster. Um, I think it's probably always been there, but I think it just gets called out more now. I think some of the yeah. racism and sexism. I often, I often say I've got a section in the in the new book about woke. I think woke has become one of those things that, you know, people who actually, particularly on the right, who want to say offensive things just feel they can't anymore. So the, the the most offensive they can get is if you've got an opinion that they don't agree with, they call you woke. Um, you know, it's like, <laughs> but it's it's like, uh, so I, I, I think some of that stuff has, has been progress. Um, but also, look, you must have seen this in sport. I think that the, the so-called old style, I was watching Bizarre, this sounds, you know, I don't want to think I'm a complete obsessive about football, but... I was watching a documentary the other day about the 1983 Dundee United team. <laughs> that, you, you were loving your football watching <laughs> who, that. Who, but it was, it was really interesting because they were all... So, so they were... I think only Dundee United and Aberdeen have won the, the title outside Celtic and Rangers. And, um, and they were talking about the manager, Jim McLean, as, you know, he came across as a bit of a brute, you know. And, and, and they were, but they were talking about him quite lovingly, looking back, but... If the style of management that they were conveying was genuinely that style of management, I'm not sure. It's not that not just that I don't think you can necessarily do it today. I'm just not sure it would be very effective. Hmm. Um, so I think you do. I think the more effective teams are the ones where there is a bit of empathy and there is a bit of understanding. Yeah, definitely. You do kind of, you know, want to know how to handle people in different ways, and you know. So I, I, I'm always interested in. You know, one of the most interesting things in that rugby experience was watching four players from four countries who literally up until a few days earlier had been at it against each other, mm. suddenly coming together and have to be meshed as a team. Um, it was fascinating to watch because, you know, and, and you could see it's quite difficult, I think, in those circumstances for the coach to know necessarily how to handle different people in different ways. And so I think you've got to be much more emotionally intelligent now in leadership than maybe was expected or understood in the past. Yeah, interesting. Leaders need the ability to, to take their teams on journeys as well. And you've mentioned the power of communication and people talk about controlling the narrative. What would be some of the techniques maybe that you would sort of show for implementing change and convincing people to, to come along that journey with you? You've got to be, I imagine, quite persuasive I think clarity is the most important thing I think mm. it's having clarity about where you're trying to get to um, and I think then it is look persuasion is a very big part of it particularly in in politics but I think that you know even again to, to go back to sport even within within sport if you think about go back to Vincent Company when he came into Burnley he literally was saying we're going to mm. you know just keep it a nucleus of the old team but we're bringing in lots of new players we're going to try and mesh them and we're going to play football in a very different way. Um, now, it's worked. We've gone straight back up, having been relegated last year. Um, but for that to have worked, 
it did have to have buy-in from people who'd been used to doing things in a very different way. So that's about clarity of where you're going alongside the persuasion. Um, so I, I think I think I'd say those two things. Actually, I think it's about the clarity of your objective and your ability to take people with you on that, and to be honest about disagreement. I think that some of the biggest strategic failures, I certainly see this in politics, I think you get the same in business, you definitely get the same in sport, it's, by, it's why in sport when you have, you can always, if you've got real friction at the top of the organisation, whether that's between the board and the manager, or the manager and the players, or the players and the coaches, or the players and other players, once you've got that, it's all fraying, mm. so it's the clarity of objective, but it's also then how do you take people with you, and a lot of that is about communication and the different skills that you need for the different people and the different I hate the word stakeholders but you know what I mean yeah I'm going to turn to Andy McCann and I'm going to put a blank compass in front of you and with with your vast knowledge now and this is your you know Alistair Campbell's cat or captain's leadership compass what do you like to demonstrate and what would be the four key traits that you would put on your compass okay remind me what yours were Okay, so mine all began with P, which were quite uh, convenient. And I, I did this with Andy. So um, number one was professional. I always wanted to be the, the best professional there was. Second was positive. I'm always just, I'm a very positive kind of person. People was one, getting the right people around me and developing my relationships with, with people. And then fourth one was performance. You have to do, you've got to walk the walk, you know. You can't just talk the talk. So you have to be one of the best performers. You've got to back up that. So professional, positive, people, and, and performance. They were my four. So okay. you can kind of take it whichever way you want, really. I'm definitely going to... This isn't necessary number one, but one of them is perseverance. Mm. So I'm going to be perseverance. Yeah, it's popped up a few times, that. Yeah, and... Uh, no, it hasn't, because it's a word I invented. Sorry. I mean, on this, on this episode, <laughs> since yourself, you've revolutionised the word. <laughs> well, I want to... My, one of my objectives in life is to get that word into the Oxford English. That would be good. That would I'm be determined. good. Strategic. Hmm. I like to think I've got a strategic mind and I like to use my mind strategically. So I say strategic. I would have people, but I think in the concept of... I had a, I had a, a maxim or a thing. I've got these posts. We, we, we've, we're having building work done upstairs, so they're not there at the moment. But normally on my office wall at the top of the house, I have all these post-its all over the wall. Um, um, and one of them says, maximum openness, maximum trust. Oh, I like that. No, that's about, so I would say that's about team. Yeah. Um, openness with the team. Yeah, I like that. So whatever I'm involved in, I much prefer if you can be very, very open. And I think that is the way to build to build trust. So like strategy, that. team openness, perseverance. Oh, God. I'm now tossing up for the last one between words and humour. <laughs> you mean like, are you thinking of, when you say humour, is it because you're thinking there's a lot of, I don't know, maybe I've got the complete wrong end of the stick before you've explained it. There's a lot of people who are very bland who are sort of in leadership roles that people can't buy into is that what you mean or do you mean by making connections with other people perhaps through humour I mean, I mean that you should always feel you can enjoy what you do hmm. no maybe that's the wrong one and maybe words is wrong as well maybe it's actually about I think maybe communicate I think it's got to be about communication so strategic communicate open t- Team openness. And perseverance. Perseverance. I, I like think that, that does me, yeah. 
Oh, well, Alice, honestly, thank you so much for coming on. You're the first guest that we had, and everyone's excited here that you were coming on. That was outside, I say outside the sporting world. You you have been in the sporting world, but I guess you've got a you know a, an enormous presence in the political world and as, as an author as well. So it's been awesome to, to have your insight. Well, and we didn't even talk about the thing that I mention every single day of my life, playing with Diego Maradona. <laughs> wow, I mean, hang on, wait there, you can't drop that bomb. What is, <laughs> let's go, what, what are you going to say with that? No, Wait, you, play, you actually met him, have you? I played in that soccer, the first soccer radio. Oh, was it? Highlight my life. You obviously haven't read Winners closely enough. God, I I, I no, I wouldn't have known that. I didn't know that. That, that was in the visualisation chapter, yeah. Oh, you know, my goodness. I, it was the best thing ever. Oh, that's a, I don't think many people can say that. I absolutely, well, I played with Pele as well. Flipping heck. <laughs> uh, not many people can say those two in I one in the same sense. And that goes back to perseverance because I thank, I don't believe in God, but I thank God that I will go to my grave of all the things I've done saying not many people That's can say cool. they played with Maradona and Pele. Absolutely not. And I not. did it. I, did, I was invited to those games. I've got enough self-awareness to know this. I was invited to that first soccer aid because I was playing for the rest of the world, because although I'm a Burnley fan, I identify totally as Scottish, not English. And <laughs> I, uh, I was playing for the rest of the world team, and I was totally well aware that one of my roles was to make sure that when the teams were announced, there were at least a few of the players getting booed. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I was there. And the resilient, the perseverance bit is out of the image that had been created for me by my many enemies in the Tory party and the press, I had this image strong enough for the United Nations and the ITV <laughs> to want me on that pitch. I love that. <laughs> Getting booed. <laughs> Take one for the team. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Oh, thanks, Alice. I'm sure our paths will cross at some yeah, point absolutely. in the future again, but it's been absolutely. a pleasure having you on and thank, thank you, you so much for your time. Not at all. I enjoyed it. Cheers. Thanks again to Alistair, it was great to catch up. We could have chatted for hours. The one thing that stood out in this part is the importance of communication. Focusing on the clarity of the message. Obviously that is absolutely vital in politics, but even in day-to-day -day life it is so true. It is easy to get wrapped up in buzzwords all of a sudden. The message gets complicated and lost and things start to unravel. It was great to hear his approach to living a well-rounded and fulfilled life with a focus on a support network to get through tough times. Okay, that's it for this episode. And also, that's all from me on this podcast. It's time for me to hand the armband over to a new captain going forward. Thank you to all of the listeners who got in touch. Thanks for all your messages and suggestions. And thank you to all of our fantastic guests for sharing their leadership journeys with me. I've loved speaking with so many great names, comparing notes and swapping stories. There will be more episodes of Captains in the future with a new host and I'll definitely be listening. Until then, thanks very much. Crowd Network. A place where you belong.